have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn with me to 2 Kings. Not 1 Kings, but 2 Kings. We are in 2 Kings, still in our study of Elijah. Now, the challenge with the study of Elijah, well, let me say this so you don't panic. First of all, we're going to look at the first three chapters of 2 Kings for the next three weeks, okay? And, that, and that's going to wrap up our study of Elijah. We're going to end it with 2 Kings 1, 2, and 3. And these three chapters are going to help us review. As I've looked ahead, studied ahead, they're kind of a, a, a three-chapter, three-point summary of everything you should have gotten and we should have learned through this series. So if you haven't gotten it or you haven't been in the series, great. You're going to dive right in here and you can catch what we've been studying. Now, technically, in light of the Lord's prophecy to Elijah in 1 Kings 19, if you're really going to study his life, uh, it doesn't end until Jezebel, Ahab's wicked wife, is eat, uh, killed and her blood licked up by dogs. That doesn't happen until 2 Kings 9. Uh, Jehu would need to be anointed king of Israel and execute the Lord's vengeance on the entire household of Ahab. That doesn't happen till 2 Kings 10. Hazael would need to be anointed king of Aram and execute God's vengeance on the nation of Israel. That doesn't happen until 2 Kings 13. And then Elisha, Elijah's disciple, would need to die and finish his ministry, and that doesn't happen until 2 Kings 13. So literally, if you're going to study the life and the ministry and the impact of Elijah, you, you really go 13 chapters. Well, we, we, I, I don't think we want to do that just yet. We'll do that when we study Elisha at another time. But these three chapters. So look at the overview of these three chapters. And, and they're, they're bookend by the rebellion of Moab. So that, this, they all tie together. And in the middle, uh, Elijah is translated and the transition to his disciple, Elisha, takes place. The mantle is passed. So these, this is good. So let's, let's look at it. It's a review. 2 Kings 1. What have we learned about the Lord himself? Uh, 2 Kings 1, which we're going to study today, is going to teach us he is trustworthy. He is trustworthy. Hopefully you've learned that through this series. If not, you'll see it again today. 2 Kings 2, what have we learned about the Lord's prophet? 2 Kings 2 is going to teach us he is loyal, but not sinless. He is loyal, but not sinless. And then 2 Kings 3, we're going to learn what have we learned about the Lord's word. And you should be able to fill this out if you've been with us. It will what? Win in the end. It will win in the end. And... As this whole series has taught us, the main idea here is to remain loyal in times of apostasy. And as I prayed just this past week, 
uh, Marty Sampson, a, a big writer for Hillsong Music, uh, publicly again on social media, walking away from the faith. But then he kind of retracted it, and he's not sure. And that's why you don't put things on social media like that, okay? And so... Uh, you know, one thing is social media kind of makes things more uh, visible and seems to happen more, you know, right, because it's social media. But the reality is the scripture says that in the end times, there will be increasingly more that fall away. And this study that we've been doing should help us to remain loyal in these kind of times. Now, where's the setup for today's lesson? The setup for us in, is actually back in 1 Kings 22. So turn back just uh, one chapter there in your Bibles to 1 Kings 22. And we're going to study, today's study is focused on Ahaziah, Ahaziah. Ahaziah, guy's name's hard to say, Ahaziah, who is the son of Ahab. And we are introduced, basically everything you need to know about him is in 1 Kings 22, 51, 51 through 53. Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel and Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and he reigned two years over Israel. So that doesn't bode well. Uh, that kind of is going to tell us this guy's evil. He's not going to last long. Two years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father, in the way of his mother. So he's, he's following in the spiritual footsteps of Ahab and Jezebel. And in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, who caused Israel to sin. Well, what's that mean? Verse 53 tells us. So he served Baal and worshipped him and provoked the Lord God of Israel to anger according to all that his father had done. So here's the thing you want to know about Ahaziah as we dive into 2 Kings chapter 1. Like father, like son. Listen, apostasy will always fail to win in the end but its wicked influence is a deadly contagion that spreads quickly and affects many. And Ahab and Jezebel have infected their sons, as we're going to see later. The apple has not fallen far from the tree. So what's the big idea as we dive into 2 Kings 1? What's the big idea? What did Ahab's son fail to learn about the Lord just like his father and mother. And here's what he fails to learn. Or here, here's what he failed to learn. And it's this. I am Yahweh. I am. The I am God is not chopped liver. The I am is not chopped liver. Have you ever heard that phrase? I mean, I've, have you ever grown up with phrases that you hear all the time, you know what they mean, but if you had to define them, you wouldn't be able to do it. And this is one of them. What am I? Chopped liver? I mean, we know what... How many are familiar? Are you familiar with that phrase? Yeah. And yet, if you had to define it, well, what's it mean? You know, if you had to turn to your neighbor now and say, okay, what's this mean? Well, basically, it means you're overlooking me. You're overlooking the obvious. You're, you're neglecting me. You know, so one friend turns to another friend and says, I wish I had knew more people that were interesting. And you say to them, what am I? Chopped liver? And, you know, and the idea is, 
I'm right here in front of you. I am interesting. I am your friend. Now, chopped liver is a specialty. It's what it is. It's chopped liver. It's a Jewish dish. And it's high in nutrients. It's good for you. It's wonderful. But when it's out on a table, people walk by it. They neglect it. They reject it. They don't choose it. And so the main idea of this passage is basically God is saying the I am God, I am, is not chopped liver. And the idea is this, dishonoring the Lord, treating Him like He's chopped liver, overlooking Him, rejecting Him, neglecting Him, ignoring Him, is a matter of life and death in this passage. Here's the idea. I wrote it out a little more extensively. The Lord is not to be actively ignored or passively overlooked. Doing so is a matter of life and death. But there's good news. When we repent and humbly seek Him, He will let us find Him and grant us life. So, Treating the I am God like chopped liver is a matter of life and death. And to do so will bring death. But the good news is, if we'll humble ourselves and repent and seek Him, He will allow us to find Him and grant us life. So, here's what this passage is. I said this is a review of what we should have learned. And if there's one thing I've taken away from this study of Elijah is, the study of Elijah isn't about Elijah. It's about the God of Elijah. And so this whole chapter tells us four wonderful attributes of God that are four reasons why we should not treat him as chopped liver in our lives. Okay? And so let's look at them. Four reasons I am is not chopped liver to be overlooked. And so the first one is this. I am is a jealous God. I am is a jealous God. I am is a jealous God who despises lifeless idols. Who despises our lifeless idols. So let's look at the story. We'll read the eight verses and then we'll break it down a little bit. Let's look at it. First, Second Kings chapter 1 verse 1. Now, Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. We'll get more into that, why that's significant next week. For now, we want to see what happened to his son. And Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber, which was in Samaria, and he became ill. So he sent messengers and said to them, Go, inquire. Now, that word inquire, seek, is the key word in the chapter. So you want to circle that, mark that in your Bible. Inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, Is it because... There is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron. What am I? Chopped liver? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed where you have gone up, 
but you shall surely die. Then Elijah departed. And when the messengers returned to him, he said to them, that is King Ahaziah, why have you returned? In other words, I sent you all the way to the Philistines, to Ekron, 15 miles away, and you've already gotten back here. You surely hadn't went there. And here's what they said to him. A man came up to meet us and said to us, Go, return to the king who sent you and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? What am I? Chopped liver? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed where you have gone up, but you shall surely die. And he said to them, What kind of man was he who came up to meet you and spoke these words to you? And they answered him, He was a hairy man with a leather girdle or belt bound about his loins. And Ahaziah said, Elijah the Tishbite. I knew it. I knew it. Now that tells us a lot as we're going to see. If he merely by that description, then he knows everything there's to know about Elijah and everything that we have been studying and that his mother and dad experienced. I mean, when you just say, hey, a hairy guy with a leather belt. Ah, you know, that's a lot. You know, probably a lot of people like that maybe in those days. I don't know, but he knows who it is. Verse 9. Oh, okay, we just stop right there. Okay, so let's look at this. What, what are we learning here? Well, first of all, who does King Ahaziah seek when he is in great need? Who are you going to call? Who does he seek? Who does he inquire? Ahaziah is just like his father Ahab. He's an apostate who seeks a false god in a pagan land instead of doing what the king of Israel ought to do in covenant relationship with Yahweh. Hey, when Yahweh's your God, who you go to in time of need? Yahweh. Unless you're treating him like chopped liver and you're overlooking him, you're neglecting him, you're rejecting him. It's, it's ironic. Ahaziah's name means Yahweh upholds. Yahweh sustains. And isn't it ironic? His dad was an apostate and yet gives him a, a Yahweh name. Yahweh sustains. Well... All we know is this. We don't know why Ahab would do that, but apostates are that way. They fall away, but they don't always go away. And this is a reminder that a godly name doesn't mean you have godly character. This guy's a mess, okay? And so in verse 2, he only reigned two years, and in verse 2, you learn everything you need to know about this guy. He has a severe fall through a lattice. So in those days, upper stories, they had windows. They didn't have pane glass. They would have a lattice that would kind of stop the sun but allow ventilation. Whether he leaned, trip, I don't know, he fell. And then when he fell, the severe fall led to a sickness, complications that led him bedridden and death-stricken. So he sends his messengers to seek a prognosis. You know, if someone, you know, when somebody tells me, hey, I, I've been diagnosed with cancer, what's the first thing you ask uh, is, what's the prognosis? Is this curable? Is this survivable? And so that's what he wants to know. And so who does he seek? He goes to Beelzebub, which literally means Lord of the Flies. 
Okay, Lord of the Flies. And some people think that this is literally the name of the God, Lord of the Flies, because flies in those days were often associated with diseases. And so this was the God who could, who had authority over disease. And so basically go to the God who is the Lord of the Flies and find out if I'm going to live or die. Now others think that Beelzebub actually refers to Lord Baal. Because we talked about this many, many weeks ago. The Jewish writers, uh, out of honor for God and out of disgust for false gods, would change one letter on Beelzebub, Lord of the Flies, or be, uh, actually uh, would change one letter of Lord Baal so it would become Lord of the Flies. And the reason being is Baal's not Lord. All he lord of is what flies are lord of. And you know what flies hang out on? Dung, crap, you get the picture, okay? So we don't know. Either way, it's a false god, and it's located in Ekron, which is 15 miles over in the land of the Philistines. Here's the point. Ahab, the king of Israel, is not seeking Yahweh, the living God. Am I going to live or die? Well, ask Yahweh, the living God, not a no-God. And he's not seeking Yahweh, the God of Israel, but he's going to a God of Ekron among the Philistines. And he's not seeking the God who is in the promised land. He's seeking a God outside of the promised land. Now listen, this is ominous for the nation of Israel. And here's why. Because ultimately, God's going to say, oh, you want to worship false gods in a false land? I will take you into captivity and send you to a false land or a pagan land which is filled with false gods. And ultimately, that's what happens to the nation of Israel. So this is a critical thing that he's doing. Now, here's the key word. The key word is inquire. Inquire. Or and, and it basically, and it's a key word in this passage, but it's a key word in the Old Testament. I got so jazzed studying this word, it just unlocks this whole passage. You say, well, what does inquire mean? It's this. It refers to the privilege and responsibility of those in covenant relationship with the Lord to seek the Lord. In other words, this is not just any word. It's a word that says... When you are in covenant, when you're in right relationship with the one true God, you get to inquire of Him. You get to seek Him. You get to speak to Him and hear Him speak to you. But only those in covenant relationship. And why would you ever to inquire of anyone else? Why would you seek counsel somewhere else? Why would you go anyone else? Why would you treat such a one? As chopped liver. Notice the key uh, key verse, First Chronicles twenty eight nine. I, I have it in your notes. It's David speaking to Solomon. It's kind of the key to Kings and Chronicles. And here it is. As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father, and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind, for the Lord searches all hearts, searches seeks. And understands every intent of the thoughts. Now, here's the key. If you seek him, inquire of him. If you seek him, he will let you find him. 
But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. That was the responsibility of Israel. That was the responsibility of the king of Israel. That's not what he did. So, secondly, how does the Lord respond to be tr- being treated like chopped liver? liver? Well, we see this in verses 3 through 4. The messengers that are sent by the king are stopped by the gracious intervention of the Lord and his prophet Elijah. Now, here's what's interesting. The word for messengers that the king sent is the same word for angel of the Lord. Angel the Hebrew word for messenger, uh, the Hebrew word can either be translated messenger or angel. Why? Because angels were often messengers, right, of the Lord. So here's the irony. You got this earthly king sending his messengers, and you've got Yahweh sending his messenger, the messenger of the Lord. And if you study the Old Testament, you find out that I believe it's pretty clear that the messenger of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Son of God. So he is sending his Son, who will be one day the true King, Jesus Christ incarnate. So this is, this is interesting. In a sense, the Son of God is intervening to say, don't do this, right? And so notice... Also, that in verses 3 and 4, we have big God theology, which we've been seeing in this study. God is all-knowing. He knows exactly what Ahab has said. He is all-present. He knows exactly where the messengers are and where to send the Son of God. And He is all-powerful. He says, you're going to die. He has life and death in His hands. This is the all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful. But even more amazing, this big God is compassionate enough, gracious enough to send His Son to intervene and warn of judgment. Isn't that cool? That's just cool stuff. Now, why does the Lord decree that the king must die? Why does He say that? And the reason is, in verse 3, verse 6, and we're going to see it again in verse 16, This phrase that is literally word for word repeated. Is it because there is no God in Israel that you're going to inquire or seek of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Why must he die? Because he is treating the one true God, I am, as chopped liver. And that is a matter of life and death. That is a choice that has life and death consequences to it. Now, why does the Lord decree he must die? Because he's being disloyal. Uh, when I studied this word inquire, uh, one, of the, 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 one of the studies said this, when you are inquiring of a false god, it's reflective that your relationship has already fallen away. So this isn't just something he's doing on a whim. This is who he is. He has fallen away from the true God. Therefore, he chooses to seek a false God. And that kind of is sobering for us. So let me just a little application right here. Listen, when we fail to, when we are neglecting or ignoring our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, it's reflective that our relationship already has a big gap. 
Okay? And so that's something to be thinking about. Now, here's the point. Why does he do this? It's because God is a jealous God who despises idols. Turn with me to Exodus 34. Turn with me to Exodus 34. I want you to see these verses. Exodus 34, 12 through 16. This is kind of the, the core of this passage. Our God is a jealous God. Now, when you think jealousy, you think that's a bad word, don't we, in our culture? Who wants, you know, jealous? You know, what's that? But notice, jealousy, the, a jealous God is a divine attribute of God. Look at Exodus 34. Let's look at verses 12 through 16. 12 through 16. Watch yourself that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land in which you are going, or it will become a snare in your midst. But rather, you are to tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, and cut down their asherim. Why? For you shall not worship any other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. He isn't. This isn't an emotional whim when he's... Uh, when you're like ignoring him and he gets mad, this is a divine attribute of who he is. He is jealous. That's his name. Otherwise, you might make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and they would play the harlot with their gods and sacrifice to their gods and someone might invite you to eat his sacrifice and on it goes. In other words, you might compromise. Well, that's exactly what Ahaziah has already done. Turn to Deuteronomy 4. Deuteronomy 4, Moses again warns them, your God is a jealous God. Deuteronomy 4, 23 through 24. Deuteronomy 4, 23 through 24. So watch yourselves that you do not forget the covenant of the Lord your God which he made with you and make for yourselves graven image in the form of anything against which the Lord your God has commanded you. Why? Verse 24. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God, a consuming fire and a jealous God. We're going to see fire here in a moment. And don't think this is just the Old Testament God and the New Testament God is a God of love because this very verse is repeated in Hebrews 12, 28. In Hebrews 12, 28, it says, For our God is a consuming fire. He's a jealous God. He's a jealous God. Now, is God sinning by being jealous for his own glory and the good of his people? And the answer to that is no. We need to reorientate what we think about jealousy. There's a difference between a bad husband who's jealous with sinful envy. You know, it's like, oh, I don't want you looking at anybody else. I don't want you talking to anybody else. You're mine. You're mine. And I'm selfish and I'm self-centered and I'm controlling and abusive. I'm insecure and full of any envy. That is a bad husband and that is not our God. But, but, a good husband is one who is zealous for him and his wife to remain loyal to their marriage vows. So, ladies... Those of you who are married, if your husband, if you would have all these friends on the side and, and get all these text messages and phone calls from other men, and your husband said, that's all right, not to worry, I have no problem with that. 
you would probably say, well, that's why I am talking to all these guys. Why? Because you are not zealous for our marriage and for me as your prized possession, right? So there's bad jealousy and there's good jealousy. This word can be translated zealous, and that's kind of maybe a better idea because it has less of the negative. But I want you to see that this is God's name. God has a zeal for His glory and the good of His people. And when you're in covenant relationship with Him, He doesn't want anything to come between you and Him. Why? Because there's nothing better than Him, and it wouldn't be good for you. Can I say that again? He doesn't want anything to come between you and Him, because there's nothing better than Him, His glory, and it wouldn't be good for you. Now, that's just good stuff. And that's what he is. And so he is jealous in that way. In fact, Oprah uh, Winfrey, uh, who is an apostate, one who fell away from the Lord by her own testimony. And the reason she did, she says, is because she grew up in a Bible-preaching church, and the pastor said, God is a jealous God. And, he, and he's, she heard that in the negative sense. Well, if he's so insecure... So selfish, so envious. What kind of God is that? And he, she claims that's why she walked away. But the problem was she didn't, didn't understand who God was. She didn't walk away from the true God. She walked away from a misunderstanding of who he is. So the first reason why uh, I am is not chopped liver is because he's a jealous God who despises lifeless idols. So here's the second reason. The second reason flows from the first, and it's this. I am is a just God who defends his sovereignty. I am is a just God who defends his sovereignty. Look in verse 9 how Ahaziah responds to the jealous God who despises his idols. Look at his response. Verse 9. Then the king sent to him a captain of 50 with his 50, And he went up to him, and behold, he was sitting on the top of a hill, and he said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. And Elijah answered and said to the captain of fifty, If I am a man of God, as you say, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Remember, our God is a jealous God, a consuming fire. So he again, now Ahaziah is a stubborn, rebellious apostate. So he again sent to him another captain of 50 with his 50, and he answered and said to him, O man of God, thus says the king, come down quickly. Now that's humorous, okay? That's ironic, okay? Uh, Look. You messed around last time and killed 50s. Now hurry up and get down here. This is the dumbest thing in the world, but sin is in irrational. Okay? And so what happens? Well, what do you think is going to happen? Elijah answered and said, If I am a man of God, as you say, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Now, here we see that the Lord is just. Now, I struggle with what word. You could have just, holy, 
righteous. You could have a lot of words. Holy might be the best. But I use just because he is being just. And people question his justice in this passage. All right. So let's take a look at it. This is one of the difficult wrath passages in the Old Testament, right? I mean, these guys are coming, and, and he, he just, God just fried 102 men. Now, this is one of those passages that makes us uncomfortable and causes us to say and do strange things to explain away the God that is revealed here. It's these kind of passages that some pastors like Andy Stanley will teach their followers to unhitch from the Old Testament. Because, look, this is too hard to explain. Your kids will go to college. They won't be able to explain this. This God is too intolerant for our tolerance. So just unhitch and hang out with the loving Jesus in the New Testament. Others will blame Elijah. Other uh, commentators will say, well, Elijah did this, but God would not have done this. Well, that's weird. Others simply reject the miracle as being the actual Word of God. Now, what do all these reactions have in common? I have it in your notes. All of, they, they all basically see this passage as innocent people being slaughtered in an inhumane manner by an unloving God. Okay, that's the, that's the thing. Innocent people being slaughtered in an inhumane manner by an unloving God. But we who hold to the inspiration of Scripture, we who want to remain loyal in times of apostasy, can't take that approach because it's not biblical. Let's take a look. Why is fire falling from heaven a just act of God? Well, first of all, let's ask, who is responsible for the fire from heaven? Who is responsible? And basically, the key word here is if. Here is what he's saying. Here's what Elijah is saying. If I'm a man of God, a man who speaks for God and is the Lord's messenger and mediator, as you have addressed me, then let God answer for me from heaven. In other words, if this is about me, then I might run from you because there's 50 of you. I might submit to you if this was about me. But if this is about God, let's let God speak to the matter. So who's responsible for this? Elijah didn't do this. Who did this? God did this. So now the question is, was God just? So here's the second question. Who is to blame for the fire from heaven? Who is to blame for the fire from heaven? And the first thing we have to ask ourselves is, are these men innocent or not? In other words, the, the idea is this. Look, Ahaziah, apostate, yeah, that's clear in Scripture. We see that. But these guys are just soldiers following orders. Are they to blame? Do they deserve? Was God just? Well, let's take a look at this. Are, the, are Is anybody innocent in this story? No, 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 no. Ahaziah is guilty before the Lord. He, he's violating Scripture. He's seeking a false god. This is really simply a replay of Mount Carmel. If God is God, let him answer by fire. If Baal is Baal, let him answer by fire. The first captain and his 50 are guilty. Why? 
Why? Because they've heard all that's gone on in the past, and they're calling him a man of God. They know what they're rejecting. Okay? And the second captain are even more guilty because they not only know what happened with the three-year drought, what happened on Mount Carmel, but they know that the first 50 didn't come back. So these men are far from innocent. But then there's the objection. Weren't these soldiers just following orders? They're not guilty, are they? Well, I say this with all respect and, and gentleness. Tell that to the Holocaust survivors who lost entire families to Nazi soldiers who were simply following orders. You see, the Nuremberg trials determined that following orders is not an excuse for committing moral, immoral acts. These guys are not simply following orders. They are culpable for doing the wrong thing and believing the wrong thing. Look at what the first two sets of soldiers say to Elijah. Look at verses 9 through 12. The first captain, and, and, and first of all, these guys are not there to simply ask Elijah to come down and have a chat. They are 50 soldiers. The point is, choose wisely, Elijah. It's a matter of life or death, and in reality, I don't care what you do, you're going to die. Okay? And then, behold, Elijah is sitting on a mountain where gods are said to rule. In other words, he's in the place of the sovereign God who rules. And then these soldiers go up to the one who is sitting, which is the right thing to do. But then they order the one who is up there to come down. And they say, oh, man of God, is that sarcasm? Well, perhaps. But they fully know who he is. They know what he is. And they know who he represents. And then they say, the king says. So once again, we have a word war. Who's the the sovereign king? Is it what Ahaziah says? Or is it what the Lord says? And then they say, come down or else. And then the second captain is even worse, come quickly. So what was the purpose of the fire from heaven? What was the purpose? The Lord is establishing that He is Lord who rules over all in the end. And this is even... uh, Let's jump over here, verse 16. Then He said to him, Thus says the Lord, Because you have sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, is this because there is no god in Israel to inquire, but notice, a little different, of His word. This is an issue of whose word rules and wins in the end, okay? And so let me give you, this is as far as we're going to make it, but let me give you this. What's the purpose of the fire from heaven? There's at least four purposes. First of all, it proves something. It proves something. Who is the true God and the sovereign king? I'm telling you, this is a replay of the smackdown on Mount Carmel. You say your king and his word rules. I say my king and his word rules. Let's let him decide. Whoosh. Whoosh. A consuming fire. Number two, 
It punishes those who rebel and refuse to repent. What happened after the fire on Mount Carmel came down and burned up the sacrifice? Elijah said, pick up your sword and slay the 450 false prophets of Baal. So here's the deal. This is the cool irony of this passage, right? The apostate king comes and says through his messengers, I say come down or else. And yet here is the one true God who speaks his word, graciously warning of judgment, and says, bow down or else. You see, there's punishment for treating the I am God as chopped liver. And it comes from the I am God. Punishment. Third, it protects his messenger. It protects his messenger. They were there to arrest and ultimately murder Elijah. And Elijah doesn't defend himself. Elijah doesn't pull out his Uzi and gun them down. Elijah doesn't protest. He has surrendered his future and his protection to the Lord his God. Now, will God always protect by saving our life? The answer is no. But even if he allows the enemy to take our life, we know that we to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So there's protection. And then fourthly, it's a proclamation. It proclaims. It proclaims. It proclaims the severity of judgment and the mercy of deliverance. And listen, this is what... So as we wrap this up, this part, I want you to stop and think about this. When we read a story like this, it's treated as a hard wrath passage. But it's also a hugely merciful passage. You say, why? Well, I don't see mercy in any of that. Well, first of all, God sent His Son, His pre-incarnate Son, to warn before this, you know, that you will die. But you know what? When you hear the judgment, the word that you will die ahead of time, it's an opportunity to do what? Repent. Second of all, there is mercy even in the fire consuming the 102 men because another 50 next week are going to be sent. And guess what? They're going to be shown mercy. And why did they seek mercy? Because they saw the judgment of God. They saw the... And boy, this, this is so cool. What we're going to see next week about why the third group of 50 were spared. But here's what you want to understand. And I want to end on this. The Lord is a jealous God who is just and merciful. He loves to dispense mercy in the midst of judgment. Now, let me read this quote. Uh, There's a book by uh, Matthew Barrett, professor at Midwestern, who just wrote a book, None Greater, about the attributes of God. And if the last chapter is good as the rest of the book, it's going to be a great book. Because the last chapter is on the attribute of the jealousy of God. You know, I thought, you know, jealousy, this is hard concept. I need help with this. I wonder if Barrett's got anything. Well, I wasn't disappointed. Here's what he says. Jealousy 
is an ardent desire to maintain exclusive devotion within a relationship in the face of a challenge to that exclusive devotion. Jealousy, as the Bible defines it, does not describe the raging, mad, jealous husband, the lunatic, who is unjustifiably suspicious and beats his wife as a result. No. Jealousy describes something more like the husband who so loves and cares for his wife and is so devoted to the commitment reflected in the promises they made on their wedding day that he seeks to earnestly draw his wife back to himself should she be flirting with adultery. No one would look at that second husband and think he's crazy for lovingly insisting on marital marital fidelity. The type that should always be present whenever two individuals have entered into a binding covenant with one another. And then he ends with this. In our age of inclusivism, exclusivism is considered intolerant. But if we really think about it, intolerant is sometimes the most loving thing we could be. No woman wants to marry a man who is so tolerant he could, could not care less if she has affairs with other men. At the end of the day, we justifiably don't want the irrational, abusive spouse. But we most definitely want a spouse who will give his or her life to keep and save the exclusive devotion promised in those wedding vows. And here's the last. Intolerant love is the type of jealousy we cannot do without. Apart from it, we have no reassurance that our spouse loves us enough to pursue us. You see, we have a jealous God who loves us enough to pursue us and to say we're ours is an exclusive relationship. Don't let anything come into it and don't treat me like chopped liver. Because I am a jealous and a just God who loves to dispense mercy in the midst of judgment. Isn't that beautiful? That was worth it today, wasn't it? Okay, come back. gets even better next week. Let's pray. Father, we come and we're talking about things too lofty for us. We're talking about things that no man or woman can come up with out of their own wisdom or education. This is your revelation of yourself, and we say thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being a jealous God. Thank you for being a just God who dispenses mercy and who warns us ahead of time of your wrath so that we can repent and run to you and receive mercy and grace in time of need. Oh, God, let us consider this week, are we treating you like chopped liver? Are we neglecting, overlooking, rejecting you? There is a God in Kansas City this morning, and you are worthy of all that we have. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good stuff. Hey, it helps me when I know you've read the chapter. So uh, read 1 Kings 1 uh, this week, along with whatever else you're doing, and we'll be able to dive in. And I'm willing to entertain questions, too. But, oh, I'm sorry, 2 Kings 1, yeah. yeah you know, Elijah, Elijah, I don't know, whatever. Just read a chapter out of Kings.